Thank you, Rob. Good morning. Good to see you all. I thank uh, Pastor for the opportunity to share God's word with you today. And uh, just glad that they've uh, had a good vacation and are safely back. And, but we're, we're happy to be here on this Lord's Day. At least I hope you are. Happy to be here to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. I trust that's why you have come. And so let's look into the word this morning as we come to this part of our service. Um, I would ask if you are able, please stand while I read the scripture. I'll be reading to you from Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. Now they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And so Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. And so Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. Please pray with me. O oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this your word, for this wonderful good news of Christ our Lord and Savior, who gives sight to the blind those who are blind in their hearts, that they may see their sin and Christ as the only Savior. We praise you and we thank you, Father, for this your word. We pray the Spirit to open our understanding and work his work among us. This I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Mark chapter 10 and verses 46 through 52. The Christian's path to glory is not in being served, but in serving God in the work of heaven's kingdom. That's not a common or even popular notion, sadly, in the church today. But the Christian's path to glory is seeking God's kingdom. It's seeking his righteousness first. At all personal cost, in every aspect of our lives, as we trust him for the necessary provisions. In fact, that's what Jesus taught the disciples and others in Matthew 6:33 in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things that you need will be added to you. 
The Christian's path to glory is a path that is necessarily paved with humble self-denial. It's the path that our Lord Jesus Christ walked. It is the path that he calls us to follow. And the last time I had the privilege of speaking with you from the Word of God, we looked at chapter 10 and verses 35 through 45. And there we learned that on this path, there's no self-seeking. There's no self-confidence. There's no self-promotion. Christ denied himself, and he did that, as we know, all the way to the cross. And there he gave his life, as we read in verse 45, a ransom for many, a ransom for his people. And his people are to deny themselves. They are to take up their cross. They are to follow him in kingdom ministry until he returns. As he said in chapter 3 in verse 35, those who are his family are those who seek to do the will of his father. And in chapter 8, verse 34, he said, If you're coming after me, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow. Now, that's a repeated theme, whether it's expressly stated or not, throughout the Gospels, and in particular, Mark's Gospel. Paul says in Romans 12, 1, really, in essence, that that's our reasonable service in light of the mercies of God toward us in Christ. Although Christ consistently taught and modeled service to God, the twelve disciples, well, they had become blinded, if you will, by the fleshly idea of personal glory. That's a real thing even for Christians. Personal glory is a temptation. And while all of them, but Judas, of course, as we find out later, all of them really had seen themselves sinners, really had placed their faith in Christ as the Savior, the humility at their conversion had given way to a prideful bickering amongst themselves. A bickering that had this narrative. Who's the greatest among us? And Jesus often rebuked them. And Jesus frequently reminded them that even He, their Lord, was headed to Jerusalem. Not for the accolades of men, not for his own personal glory, but to suffer, to die. And to suffer and die as God the Father had ordained. And so Mark records Jesus' encounter with the blind beggars here. And he does that, obviously, as you read through Mark's account, he does it to contrast humility with the disciples' pride. It emphasizes the necessity of humility as we follow Christ in this life. The importance of remembering the humility 
that we had when we first turned in faith to Him. And so, to do this, Mark says in the verses before us that Jesus encounters this beggar, in particular, one beggar, but there were really two, as I'll mention in a moment. But Mark focuses on the one, and he focuses on his condition and his cry and his calling and his conversion, just so that I, as uh, old pastor, can stick with some alliteration there. Let's look at this blind beggar and consider ourselves still to be blind beggars, if you will. Verse 46 tells us that Jesus and his disciples, they're taking the road up to Jerusalem. If you'll look back in verse 32, you'll see they're going up to Jerusalem, and that means up in elevation. And this initially brings them through the city of Jericho. That may ring a bell from Joshua chapter 2 in particular. They're passing by the ancient ruins of that city that the people of Israel led by Joshua the son of Nun when they entered the promised land and began the, the battle to take the promised land, the land of Canaan. They go through Jericho first. That's their first conquest. Matthew's gospel says they're going out of Jericho. Mark and Luke indicate that Jesus is drawing near. It's a little bit of both. Maybe they're talking about passing the ancient ruins that would, would have been visible still at that time. More likely, I think it's probably that as Jesus encounters the beggar, he turns back. And so you kind of have that idea of him being in and around Jericho when this is happening. But just to give you a little geography, Jericho, the city, lies some 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And if you're coming from the north where Jesus had finished most of his ministry and then he passed over on the eastern side of the Jordan in the land of Perea and then he's come back down and crossed over the Jordan again. And he's come to this city where the Jordan River Valley has continued to drop very much in elevation as it makes its way down to the Dead Sea, which is, by all accounts, some 1,300 feet below sea level. He's very, very low in elevation. And now from there, they'll go through the city of Jericho and begin their ascent up the mountains as they make their way to Jerusalem and they'll climb from that point Jericho maybe about 800 feet below sea level all the way to Jerusalem some 25 feet above sea level and it's really not that far apart as the crow flies so it's a steep climb to reach their destination now I mention that because Jericho and its location are significant in that the path to glory for Christ, listen, is an uphill battle from there. Not that he had not always been in a battle as he faced off with satanic forces and unbelieving Jewish leaders and an unbelieving nation for that matter. 
But now, very much in a physical way and a spiritual way, it is all uphill from there. He has set his face toward Jerusalem, and he's going there to die. And like Joshua, who led Israel into the promised land, Jesus' ministry will intensify as he goes to cross to the cross, rather, to secure heaven for his people. This is not an insignificant thing that Jesus now, on his way to gain heaven for us, to gain the new heavens and the new earth and the glory of that for us, he's crossing the Jordan, he's entering Jericho, and he's making his way into the land and toward the holy city of Jerusalem. So Jesus will be tested even more so. He can look from Jericho and he can see the wilderness around him. It was in that wilderness earlier that he was tempted by Satan as we go all the way back to the beginning of this gospel. Jesus would look at Jericho and he would remember that there Rahab the harlot had been brought to faith in the promise of God, she would end up being in his lineage, actually, as the other synoptic gospels will explain. But Jesus, really, I think the significance of this is that he's entering Jericho and he's going into the promised land. And Joshua, the son of Nun, in ancient Israel, was this type of Christ. And I think that the imagery here is clear. But not only is Christ to be tested, but the testing of the disciples' faith is in view. They're battling over who's the greatest, and Jesus is having to correct them, and now they're really going to be tested. They just haven't understood that he was going to die. They've not understood what he's about to face, and they've not understood what they're about to face, and this testing of their faith. Do they understand who Christ really is? Do they understand what the work of the kingdom really is? Do they know that only because Christ is going to that cross can they actually have eternal life and be in the kingdom? seems to me like a perfect place for a miracle that emphasizes the need for a humble trust in God. Now Matthew's gospel mentions two blind beggars. As I said earlier, they receive healing from the Lord. That is true. There were two there. Mark and Luke focus on the one evidently that's more vocal so Mark mentions one beggar. And Mark alone identifies him as Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. He merely is translating his last name, his surname, because Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus. Maybe that was to indicate how insignificant he was to all the people around him there in Jericho. He was just 
one of many blind, one of many lame, one of many otherwise disabled persons who would sit by the roadside and would seek alms from those passing that way. A gift of charity to help them feed themselves for the day. He was nothing. Bartimaeus was no one. He did good that they might remember who his family was. And he sits by the roadside in his humiliation. From the Jewish perspective, a beggar's condition was frequently viewed as a punishment from God. Your disability was a punishment from God. If you'll remember John chapter 9, there was the blind man, blind from birth. And the disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord... Why is this man blind, his own sin or that of his parents? And Jesus said, neither, but for the glory of God. But that was the mindset of, of the Jews in that day and the mindset of many people today. You look at someone less fortunate than yourself in a situation that you're fortunate or blessed by God rather not to be in by His grace. And don't tell me you don't think, well, I wonder what they did. That's one of the things that crosses our mind, isn't it? Even as Christians, that can make its way back in there. Wonder what happened to them. Wonder why that happened to them and to their family. And Jesus says that doesn't have anything necessarily to do with it, at least not in the case of that man in John chapter 9. But that's how they saw it. And it was a social humiliation. And so as Jesus ministry grows more difficult. He encounters a blind beggar, and this blind beggar didn't need any more difficulty in his life, did he? I mean, I don't wake up in the morning, I don't know about you, but I don't think, you know, hey, can I have a little extra difficulty today? No. He's there in his condition, begging from people just to have food to eat, and maybe keep himself clothed. And even though it was less than desirable, think about it, it's easier for him to stay in his current hopeless condition and just look to men for help. Think about that. But in his own humiliation, the beggar regards Christ as his only hope of healing and real life. He's more than ready at that point to leave his condition. What about you? Have you turned to Christ in faith? Have you considered the condition you were in before as worse by far? No matter what it requires of you to follow Christ, to turn from sin, to place your faith in Him, to follow Him, is what you've left behind, left behind? Well, that's what was in the heart of Bartimaeus, this blind beggar. And so we're told that he cries out when he hears that Jesus is coming by. Here's Jesus of Nazareth, this itinerant preacher and healer, and he's heard of him. Although Jesus 
as far as we know from Scripture, never had visited Jericho at this point, at least up to that point. And so Bartimaeus is aware that Jesus teaches about God. He, he calls him Rabboni, or teacher later. He's aware that he can heal. Son of David, he cries out, have mercy on me, but he also knows and regards Jesus as the Savior, Son of David. A messianic title used in the Old Testament prophets and frequently throughout the Gospels. In other words, he believes Jesus to be the Christ, the chosen of God, the chosen one in King David's line who would fulfill all the promises of the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, salvation, blessing, life, heaven, a kingdom. To Bartimaeus, that sounds a whole lot better than sitting by the roadside begging for mere men to help. And even though many were looking for the Son of David to appear, we'll see that in chapter 11, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And what do all the people cry out? Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. But the difference between the, the crowd and the triumphal entry and Bartimaeus on the roadside begging is that most of, not all the crowd didn't really believe it. That Christ was the son of David. Bartimaeus considered Jesus to be the Savior. And the crowd says, be quiet. You're making too much noise. Trying to drown everyone out. So in the noise of the crowd, which was large perhaps at that time, and following Christ all the way as he came down from the north, large crowds followed him. And of course, they're all headed toward Jerusalem for the Passover. And they say, Bartimaeus, stop yelling. Stop being so loud. They warn him to be quiet, and Bartimaeus cries out all the more. I like Bartimaeus because he's loud about his faith in a good way. Son of David, have mercy on me. That's the humble heart cry of someone who understands they're a hopeless sinner. Is that your cry? Has that been your cry? I think that's the cry of a repentant heart which lasts the believer all their life. Have mercy on me. I pray that every day for me and my family. Lord, have mercy on us. It can be nothing less, can it? I mean, if you've been born again by the Spirit of God and you see yourself a sinner and Christ is the Savior, what naturally should flow? Lord, have mercy. 
There's such a disparity between you, the Holy One, and me, the sinner. It's what Peter cried out in the boat when Jesus said, launch out into the deep and cast out your net. And they catch this great catch that they hadn't caught one fish all night. And here's this net full. They drag it in. And everyone's all excited. And then all of a sudden, Peter's overwhelmed. What does he say? Great, let's go have breakfast? No. Peter says, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Have mercy. I'm in the presence of a, a holy one. Lord Jesus, have mercy. The cry of the humble and repentant down through the ages who know of God's mercy towards sinners, sinners who call upon the name of the Lord. You may remember the cry of David, Psalm 51, after his sin with Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. That's the beggar's cry. But very briefly in verse 49, we find that sinners can cry to God for mercy because Christ has come to call them to repentance. And what did Jesus say early on in Mark's Gospel? Chapter 2, verse 17. The Son of Man... Another messianic title. The Son of Man did not come to call righteous people, but sinners to repentance. Bartimaeus could call out all he wanted, but unless Jesus gave him an audience, his opportunity to be healed of blindness was gone. And yet because God is merciful, and because God hears his ears are open to the cry of the repentant heart. We know from the Scripture that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Why? Because God is a merciful God. He's merciful, He told Moses. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to those who fear Him, who keep His covenant. Bartimaeus had nothing to offer. Bartimaeus could only receive. And what he knew, knew he needed to receive more than anything was the mercy of Christ. The compassion and the mercy of God is seen as our Lord stands still. And as I said earlier, probably stopped and then turned back to Bartimaeus. Jesus is always seen coming to the sinner. Meeting them. He stood still, obviously rebuking the crowd for scolding the beggar as he commands them, call him. 
Now here's some wonderful words. Be of good cheer. Rise. He is calling you. Be of good cheer. Rise. Christ is calling you. Sweetest words any sinner can hear. Isn't that really what we're saying when we share the gospel with other people? Think about that. Jesus says to us who have trusted him, call them with what? The gospel. And what is the gospel? Rise. Be of good cheer. God is calling you with the good news of salvation. Though you are a sinner, though you have no possible way of living up to God's holy and righteous standard, there is one whom the Father has sent into this world that He might live the righteous life that you have failed to live and that He might give His life a ransom for your soul. To atone for your sin. To make propitiation. To satisfy the wrath of God toward you. So not only is your sin forgiven, if that were all there was to it, you would just be back at ground zero. You still wouldn't have the righteous life that God requires of you. When Jesus says, be holy as your Father in heaven is holy, He means it. That's, that's what's required of you. But the Lord Jesus Christ gave His righteous life, lived for you, and He dies on the cross and suffers the wrath of God and satisfies God's demand for justice both ways, for righteousness both ways. And so if you've not turned from sin and placed your faith in Christ this morning, the, the word to you is, is rise. He's calling you. And you can be of good cheer if you'll hear that call of the gospel, that good news of Christ. And you'll turn from sin and you'll place your faith in the Lord Jesus. But if you're a Christian this morning, it's your job to tell others to be of good cheer and to come to the Lord. That's what we do. As, that's our ministry as Christians. That's what Christian ministry is. That's what Mark is emphasizing as he tells us about our Lord Jesus and His ministry all throughout Mark's Gospel. Christ is the servant. He's the one doing the Father's will. He's the one not only proclaiming the Gospel, but He's the one ensuring the Gospel, fulfilling the promise of God. That's what the gospel is. The promise of God for salvation fulfilled. Bartimaeus, his response shows that he believed Jesus to be more than a miracle worker. More than just a um, rabbi from Galilee and Nazareth. Nazareth of Galilee. 
his cloak, his outer garment, that was not an easily replaceable possession. In fact, it was really a very valuable possession to all people, but some had more than one. A blind beggar had only one, and a blind beggar probably didn't have one in very good condition. And so for him to hear this call and rise up and then just throw off his outer garment so that he's, he's free to move more rapidly to come to Christ, that's saying a lot. He didn't say, ah, can, you, can you hold my garment? Can I trust you to hold my garment for me while I go see Jesus? Or, well, let me take it off, but let me carry it with me because I don't want someone from the crowd to take it, which they probably would have done. It doesn't even enter his mind. He just throws it off. It's a, a hindrance. It, it delays him if he keeps it. And so he discarded what wasn't necessary. Now, isn't that a picture of repentance? I mean, if you're really, really seeing yourself as a sinner, you don't want the sin anymore, right? And we still have to struggle with it as believers, as we remain in this flesh, but... We hate it. We don't like it. That's what repentance is. You're uncomfortable with your sin. And even if you engage in sin, though it might be pleasurable for the moment, you're unhappy with it. You, you don't just see it as something that brought bad consequence. You see it as the offense to God that it is. If we're repentant, we see sin as the cloak that hinders us from not only coming to Christ in the first place, but following Him effectively afterward. And so everyone who humbly calls on the Lord, who desires mercy, doesn't cling to anything else or anyone else, no matter how valuable. Pride most of all. As in conversion to Christ, so is our service to Christ. In verse 51, Jesus notably asked Bartimaeus the same question. Please pay attention to this. The same question that he asked James and John in the previous passage. What do you want me to do for you? Here's the contrast. Bartimaeus responds with the humble faith that James and John should have responded with but failed to display. Because once you are repentant and have faith in Christ, that's the result of being born again, as I said earlier, but your faith and your repentance can wane depending on how much you want to flirt with sin. And they were flirting with sin. They entertained pride in their hearts, these brothers, James and John, these disciples close to the Lord, who should have known better, who did know better, but were nonetheless caught up in their prideful self-seeking like the other disciples. 
But Bartimaeus, his response is for mercy. When Jesus says, Bartimaeus, what can I do for you? He doesn't say, well, Lord, I'd like my sight back. And then I'd like a new cloak, maybe several changes, a few pieces of silver at least. My family name restored in the community since, you know, I've been a blind beggar all these years and so on and so on. Glory for me, greatness for me. That's not what Bartimaeus, it doesn't even concern him. Teacher, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Well, you can debate whether Bartimaeus understood and meant that two ways, one for his physical sight and the other for his, for his spiritual sight, but I really think it's because his spiritual sight was already given to him. Teacher, may I receive my sight. James and John asked that Jesus would grant their selfish request. Bartimaeus says, Lord, have mercy. Jesus' response could not be more contrasted with his earlier response to the disciples. Bartimaeus' faith is commended. Bartimaeus is healed immediately of his blindness. And without hesitation, Bartimaeus follows Jesus on the road. In fact, our Lord uses the healing of physical blindness to pronounce Bartimaeus' spiritual sight, his salvation. In fact, the phrase, made you well, can literally be translated, has saved you. Your faith has saved you. So the humble blind beggar displays, displays repentance and faith, a willingness to follow the Savior, and pride had weakened the disciples' faith, and they left their first love and selfishly sought glory for themselves. Where is your repentance and faith this morning? I mean, if you have turned from sin to Christ, that's the beginning of a life of faith. But if you're following Him, what are you focusing on now? You, your stuff, your social standing, the way people view you, people in society look at you. I want to say this, and if you don't remember anything else, please remember this. Christians are n never any more than blind beggars to whom Christ has shown mercy. You don't move beyond that. There is no lasting self-glory. Your glory is in Christ and His glory. And His glory is in the Father's glory. Christians are never more than blind beggars to whom Christ has shown mercy. And so, 
following Christ by faith daily for our Heavenly Father's glory requires the same humility that brought us to Christ in the first place. The Lord's always required humility. We're familiar with Micah 6 and verse 8. God's told us what is good. What the Lord requires of us is to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with our God. Scripture says that God will give grace to and exalt the humble in due time. There's another passage from the Psalms, Psalm 25, verses 8 through 10. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore He teaches sinners in the way. The humble He guides in justice, and the humble He teaches His way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as, is, to such as keep His covenant and His testimonies. So humility is a prerequisite for faithful, fruitful Christian service. You say, what's my service? It's to do the will of God wherever you are. Whatever your circumstance. In your family. Among your the people you work with, within the congregation of believers that you worship and serve the Lord with, in your community, whatever you encounter, whatever is called upon you to do, you do it with humility. And you glorify God in that right approach to living out the gospel. Paul, you'll remember, asked the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, to remember his example of serving the Lord in all humility in his sufferings and his trials. The apostle admonished the Ephesian church also, walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. There is no lasting, loving communion among believers if pride motivates us individually. And recognizing the need to work at humility and other godly attributes, Paul urged the Colossians, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Those are not selfish attributes. Matthew Henry notes in his commentary on this passage in Mark, it is not enough to come to Christ for spiritual healing. It's not enough just to come for him, to Him and hope to have your sins forgiven, in other words. But he continues, when we are healed, 
When we are saved, we must continue to follow Him that we may do honor to Him and receive instruction from Him. Those who have spiritual eyesight to see the beauty of Christ, to see that beauty in Christ that will effectually draw them to run after Him. That's the believer. In other words, if you can't bring yourself to humbly follow Christ who has humbly given Himself for you, then you've never really seen Him for who He is. Do you see Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, for who He is? The Son of God? The one who came into the world not to live for himself, but to live for the glory of the Father, to bring you and me, blind beggars, into the kingdom of heaven? To do that by giving himself so completely to the Father's will that he would end up on the cross and suffer the curse of the law for us? Is that the Christ that you profess this morning as a Christian? Humility seems sadly to be at a minimum among many who profess the Lord. I think one of the things I notice in the church, especially with all that's going on as of late and the year 2020 at least, is a sense of entitlement within the church. As if we're not still blind beggars following Christ, though given our sight, we don't see ourselves as anything more than we were before. We just see now. As in past generations, some would exalt themselves. Some would exalt their own opinions. Some exalt their own ideologies. Their preferences. Their agenda for glory among men. And they exalt that over Christ. And over the kingdom of heaven. That's a far cry from seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, wouldn't you say? Paul reminded an increasingly proud Corinthian church that they had nothing of which to boast as those who were called by God. Nothing to boast of in themselves. And he says in First. Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 30. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, not many who are looked up to in this prideful world, 
But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God's chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, the base things of the world, and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and the righteousness and sanctification and redemption that God provides, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. You want to follow Christ into the glory of the new heavens and the new earth? Well, listen, friend. It's only uphill. There's no smooth road. Even in our present culture where we've not resisted persecution to the point of bloodshed. It's an uphill battle that requires the same humility and trust in Christ as at the first. So I'll ask you this, what are you selfishly pursuing for your own glory that's holding you back? What cloak aren't you willing to throw off to follow Christ? What cloak aren't you willing to throw off to come to Him in the first place to heed the call of the gospel? But having turned to Christ in repentant faith, is there something keeping you today from following Him on the road up to Jerusalem, as it were? What are you not doing in your life for the glory of God? I don't think I have to go into any type of specifics. Just think on that a moment. Remember that the path to your glory is through Christ who humbled himself all the way to the cross for the glory of the Father and for your good. We're going to observe the sacrament of the communion this morning and that bread that you will eat well that represents the sinless life of your Savior and that life broken for you that fruit of the vine of which you will partake it represents that sinless life of Christ given for you on the cross of Calvary, his blood shed as an atonement, a covering for your sin, a satisfaction for the wrath of God. I want you to keep that in mind as you think about the blind beggar that you are this morning. Let us bow our heads in prayer. O oh, Father in heaven, thank you so much for this clear, clear message about 
our own lives as we look at the life of a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. Lord, I pray that you will convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, that you will make us miserable in our sins, and that if any are here who have not turned to Christ from sin, that they will. And for those of us who have answered the call of the gospel, that we will evaluate ourselves and our service to you in your kingdom, and that we will make certain we are following our Savior, the Lord of glory, and the work of the kingdom, telling others and living out before others this glorious gospel, this good news of the one who lived a perfect life and gave that life a ransom for our soul. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Christ broke the bread and he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, Paul says that Christ also took the cup after supper. And all of them understanding the symbolism, certainly, of this, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This new covenant that I will do for you what you could not do for yourself under the old covenant is provide the righteousness you need for eternal life. Jesus said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul concludes, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim it to yourself. You are remembering the gospel. You proclaim it to one another. You proclaim it to any among us who may not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Let's stand together. Let us uh, sing together, as you'll find in your bulletin there, the doxology. Doxology. Please receive the blessing of the Lord. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you 
may he give you peace.